Well, during ordinary time, the long season between Pentecost and Advent, it's been our custom in this church the last few years, at least, to take a break from the lectionary every so often in order to dig deep into a book of the Bible all the way through. We've done Ephesians, and this time we're going to do Ruth. For the next four Sundays, we're going to be walking through the little Old Testament book of Ruth together. I encourage you to come each Sunday if you can, having read and thought about the chapter that's coming up, and to take the opportunity to go deeper in either our Sunday morning or Wednesday evening small group Bible studies. My mentor, Fleming Rutledge, who was one of the first women ordained in the Episcopal Church and whose preaching and books I can't recommend highly enough, told me once about the revival that her parish, Grace Church in Manhattan, experienced in the 80s and 90s. The church, as she tells it, was growing, especially among unchurched and dechurched people, bringing together a diverse group of artists and actors, bankers and professionals, rich and poor. And as she told it, it was a time of creative and servant ministry in what was at that time a fairly rough area. What was behind it all, I asked her. Her answer was simple. People were just reading the Bible together, and the Word of God was living and active in that place. There's no reason why that couldn't be us, too. And my prayer is that for the next five weeks, God will show you individually and us as a community what He wants to do in your life and in this church as we read the Bible together. So, we could have, of course, chosen any book of the Bible, but it's just the fact that Ruth works better than Leviticus for small groups and sermon series. I'll do the sermon on uh, Ruth, uh, excuse me, on Leviticus's regulations about mold some other day. I think you'll discover, if you haven't already, that Ruth is a remarkable piece of literature for at least three reasons. First, it's really just an excellent short story. It's a classic for a reason. It starts with a tragedy, and our protagonist's on the ropes. It has a daring plan, danger, true love, friendship, and a happy Hollywood ending. Second, it's one of only two books in the Bible that's chiefly about women. There's Esther, and then there's Ruth. And it's told from a woman's point of view. And not just any old wealthy and powerful woman from the ancient world like you might expect, Cleopatra or Nefertiti, but from the viewpoint of poor, simple, ordinary women, widowed and in dire economic need. Third, Ruth is the only book of the Old Testament whose namesake or main character was not actually a part of the covenant people of Israel. Think about that. We learn right away in this book that Ruth was from Moab, an enemy people who did not worship the Lord God. Yet, here Ruth is in the canonical list, listed right alongside the books of Moses, Joshua, Samuel, and the other heroes of Israel's history. As we'll see, Ruth is a story about where great King David comes from, and by extension, the family line of Christ our Lord. It's a little story that says to anyone who reads it, Do you know that King David's great-grandmother was actually an immigrant from Moab? Did you know that David's great-grandfather Boaz married a woman from Moab? Well, they did. All of this should make us sit up and take notice. 
What does it say about God that this story is in the Bible? It's not a story about yet another great and powerful man. Instead, it zeroes in on two poor women and their hopes and troubles. It's not even primarily about an Israelite. It's about an immigrant, a foreigner, an outsider who comes to Israel with nothing and winds up becoming the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king. Just the fact that this story exists is actually kind of remarkable. These are not the kinds of stories that normally got written and passed down in the ancient world. The fact that this story is in the Bible must mean that God cares about people like Ruth and Naomi, the widows, the foreigners, the poor, and the hopeless. God sees them. His struggles matter. Their struggles matter to him. Their, his will is for their redemption, to bring them into his people and give them a hope and a future. What we'll see as we read Ruth together these next several weeks is that this book is here in the Bible because of who God is, what God is like. The story of Ruth is a kind of chain reaction that's propelled forward by what the Hebrew language called hesed. This is a, a, a word that recurs again and again throughout Ruth with key points. Hesed is the quality of generous kindness and faithfulness grace and steadfast love and sacrifice beyond any obligation. The characters in Ruth show hesed to one another, and what happens when they do is the tragedy and bitterness get turned into hope, redemption, new beginnings, and joy. It's a story not only about the redemption of Ruth and Naomi, but also about how the redemptive work of God in Christ works. So, to the story. When we first meet Naomi and Ruth this morning, we find out right away that their story is one that starts with hardship and loss. There had been a famine in Israel, and so Naomi's family had moved across the Dead Sea to the neighboring country of Moab. It's just right across the Dead Sea, not far. They stayed there long enough that their two sons married Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. By the way, Oprah's name... She was originally named Oprah. Excuse me, Orpah, but everybody mispronounced it uh, Oprah. So she's Oprah now. After a few years, her husband, Elimelech, died. And then her two sons, Malon and Chilion, died too, one after the other. The story wants us to know how much this weighs on Naomi's heart. The first paragraph ends with the phrase, So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's where she was. Now we can sympathize with that as readers today, I believe. But what readers back then would have also seen right away, that we have a harder time seeing, is that this put Naomi into both poverty and great danger. Life insurance and law enforcement were not high priorities of the ancient world. And you have to imagine that for women left on their own, destitution, robbery, and violence were real, live possibilities. It also meant that Naomi would have seen her family line as coming to an end. 
Her sons were dead, and she had no grandchildren to raise. She was past childbearing age herself. And you have to understand that this was a world where family was everything. You lived to pass down the gift of life and the family name and heritage, maybe the land, to the next generation. In the modern West, we can sometimes have a hard time getting into this mindset. The best example I can think of is, think of a Scottish Highlander clanswoman from 200 years ago, having to face the fact that she was the very last of the McDonald's. How terrible that would be. That's something like what Naomi must have felt. So this is Naomi. When we encounter her, she is a person who's undergone deep loss, life-threatening hardship, and has also lost that which gave her life meaning and hope. That is the future of her family. And we're told that going through all of this has made Naomi bitter. She thinks that God has turned his hand against her. Why have you done this to me, God? She asks. It has been far more bitter for me than for you, she tells her daughters-in-law, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. In next week's reading, we'll hear her say, Call me no longer Naomi. The word means sweet. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter. There's this marvelous line then from the villagers in Israel who knew her from back when. Once, they, once she gets back and they see her after she's been gone for ten years, they say to each other, Is this Naomi? It seems like there's been such a profound change in Naomi that people can hardly believe this is the same person anymore. And Naomi, as it were, agrees with them. Yes, yes. I used to be Naomi, sweet, cheerful, hopeful, but I'm a different person now. I'm bitter. That's who I am. Bitterness itself. I don't have a husband. I don't have sons. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I don't have a future. Bitter is who I am. It's no wonder, of course, why Naomi felt deep sorrow and grief. Who wouldn't in her shoes? But I think we also see in the text here a warning about where sorrow and grief can take us if we let it. We can become embittered by what's happened to us in life. And part of what it means to be embittered, the text is saying, is that we can't see anymore the blessings that we do have. Naomi says later on that she had gone out to Moab full and returned empty. But she actually wasn't empty, was she? Because she had two daughters-in-law, Ruth, excuse me, uh, Ruth and Orpah, who loved her deeply. And we'll see next week that Ruth was so dedicated to her that she would not leave her side, even at great risk to herself. When we're embittered, we don't see things like we also start to think that everyone and everything is against us, and nothing can ever go right. God's hand is against me, Naomi says. I'm sure of it. As we read on, we'll discover that her perspective is off. 
Because God's hand is actually at work in her life to bring her a future and a hope, only she can't see it yet. Finally, when we're embittered, we can start to become closed in on ourselves, so focused on the trials that we're suffering that we can hardly see the suffering or the joy of people around us. It's all about the pain we feel. Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, It has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. But remember that she's speaking here to two women who had just lost their husbands. How could she be so sure that it's far worse for her than it is for them? Ruth seems to take it much differently. Bitterness. Call me bitter. When we grow through, go through great hardship and loss, it can be so easy to let bitterness take over. Until, like Naomi, we become a different person. I'm not Naomi anymore. Bitter is my name. There's nothing left for me. My hopes are gone. Everyone's against me. You can't trust anyone. What's the use? Bitterness is when our heart shrivels up. So that we can't even see the blessings in our life that are right in front of us a good and faithful daughter-in-law like Ruth. We can't even see the plan that God still has for us, for our lives, to give us a future and a hope. You may have seen in the news in the past couple years about the recent rise in so-called deaths of despair. Have you seen this? People who take their own lives or fritter them away with drugs or drink or massive overeating. Life expectancy has actually gone down in this country for the first time in decades. And this is largely why. Despair. Bitterness. People who've gone, undergone great loss and hardship, who find themselves alone in this world, who don't think they have a future and a hope, and if they believe in God, they probably don't, well, they don't think that God is willing or able to redeem their lives from the black pit they've fallen into. The last five words of today's reading, though, are what begin to turn Mara, the woman named Bitter, back into Naomi and pull her out of the pit. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. She wouldn't let her fall into that pit. Even in her bitterness, Naomi had been touched by the hased that Ruth and not, that Ruth had shown to her late sons. The generous grace, faithful love, kindness, and sacrifice beyond any measure or deserving. And so she managed, even in her bitterness, to show that same generous kindness to them, giving them leave to stay in Moab and to seek new husbands, even though that would then leave her as an old woman utterly alone, fending for herself, traveling back to Judah by herself. And Ruth then showed Hesed back to Naomi, 
promising not to leave her, no matter what. Even if it meant going to a land where she would be a foreigner, where she may never find a husband, where what she expected was to die where Naomi died. Why would someone do that? Well, in the passage we'll read next week, Naomi is dumbstruck by what Ruth is doing. She doesn't really have words to process it. When Naomi saw, the story goes on to say, that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. That's it. She said no more. But I can just see Naomi, down in the black pit of bitterness into which she had fallen, starting to think about this in her heart as they walked together on the road to Israel. Ruth is doing this for me. This I didn't expect. This is too much, but clearly there's no stopping her. This person is crazy, but... And I can imagine as she thinks, some of the bitterness in Naomi's heart starting to melt away. She doesn't change right away. But by the time the story ends, she's Naomi again. Ruth's generous, faithful, sacrificial kindness is the agent of God in Naomi's life that changes Naomi's heart. As we move on to focus on Ruth next week, pay close attention, because the text is not only saying that Ruth is like this, it's also saying that God is like Ruth. Remember that Ruth is in the line of David, in the line of Christ. And it's saying also that God can use more faithful, giving, loving roots in this world to change the hearts of Naomi's, people who have become embittered by suffering and loss. If you are Ruth today, and we're all called to be, there is probably a Naomi in your life who God wants to use you to help heal. If you are Naomi today, and we all get there sometimes. Please don't let your pain keep you from seeing the kindness and love that a Ruth somewhere in your life has for you. And don't forget that God sees your sorrow, and that God does have a plan to bring you up from the pit, and to give you a future and a hope. Amen. Mm -hmm.